Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this episode, we're going to be discussing engaging the developer community with Janie Clayton. But before we bring Janie into the conversation, Jake, I did want to sort of first discuss this with you and see if there's anything that you do to actively raise your profile amongst your peers. So for instance, I know you're a long-time member of the RayWendlick.com team. I know you have a blog, and that blog's resulted in you securing some contract work, so that's obviously been quite lucrative for you. And you also had your first taste of conference speaking at RW DevCon back in February. But I want to know, like, I want to get your take on this before we get Jane into the conversation. But I do definitely like to participate in the community. Most of what I've done, though, has been kind of been a chain reaction from being part of the Ray Wenderlich team. So I have actually applied a couple of times to do a 360i dev talks. Um, so yeah, I do things. I think it's important. I also participate a lot in local groups. I, I go to the Cocoa Heads group uh, very regularly. I get a lot of Uh, initially I did that because I needed people that I could make my friends that could answer questions when I got stuck. That was my initial impetus of like, because I was, I didn't study computer science in school. So I just kind of self-taught. And if you're really, really smart, you can do that and it can work. But if you're just kind of smart, sometimes it's really nice to have help when you're self-taught. And so I participate a lot locally and, and it started just kind of needing help. And now, you know, now I'm somebody that can actually provide help from time to time. So so yeah, I think I think community participation is super important. I make my living on contract work, so I don't have a regular full-time job where I always know, you know, in 3 months from now, I know who's going to be signing my checks. I don't know that. And so it's good for me to be connected in as many ways as possible because when you're, you know, when you have a lot of buddies that are developers, you hear about different opportunities that come around. So that's kind of my take on. It. I think it's super important and it is super important for for where, you know, my money actually comes from. And do you think? How about you? Well, do you think the work that you've done um, through Ray and RayWendlick.com and your own blog has meant that you, you know, you've got more lucrative contracts? You've been offered those contracts in the first place. Like the people at the local developer meetings that you go to know who you are when you go. Like, has it? Yeah. Has it? You know, is that has that had a huge positive impact? Uh, yes, absolutely. There's two things about that. One, I feel like if you can do contract work and keep yourself busy, you can make more money because short-term contract gigs, the the going rate for like uh, hiring somebody that has expertise for one month is higher than paying somebody to come work for you full-time. Like you, you get paid a lot more. Usually the trade-off is that there's a level of risk where you, you do have downtime. You do have times when you don't know if you're going to have any work. And so that kind of the stress, the anxiety, and the and the downtime and stuff, it, it can go either way. But if you do keep yourself busy, then you definitely make more money as a contractor than you do as like a full time employee. Obviously, that depends on where you're working. I mean, there's I know people that are full time employees that make more money than me. But just in terms of my local group and the peers that I work directly with, um, in general, I, I I I'm able to make more money as long as I keep myself busy than than my fr- my you know local friends that are just doing full time work. Now, obviously, sort of when you write for the site and when you work on the books, you're getting paid for that as well. So yeah, yeah. So and when- that money that and that's nice because it it's a ton of work, but then it you know you get paid over time. So that that first month you're like, man, why am I doing this? And then <laughs> and then every other month <laughs> you're like, oh, that's nice to have. <laughs> so. It works so, out well. So I think what I'm getting at though is like 
putting the money to one side. Did, I, I, did you start writing for the site? Well, I can't say putting the money to one side because now I'm going to ask you, money, <laughs> ask you a question about the money. But when you started writing for the site and working on the books, was it just because you were going to get paid like any other job? Or no. was, it, was it personal gratification? Was it the sense of giving something back because you'd learned from Ray's site? So you wanted to give yeah. something back and teach others? The grandeur of your name associated as an author of a book, well, and a really popular book at that. You know, like there's all these different things that come with, you know, just stepping a little bit further out of your comfort zone and just developing and doing all these other things and being like an active member of the community and get, you know, like, and putting content out there that others can learn from. I'm just trying to get like, what's your motivation for doing that other than money? (laughs) Yeah. So when I first initially got involved with Ray, I had no anticipation of making any money. I think the tutorial was like, it was paid at the time. It still is paid, but it, it didn't pay as well back then. And it, it didn't pay well for the amount of hours it took, especially me, because I'm actually quite slow when I write. Uh, writing is a painful process. I like the code, creating the project part is fun for me, but the actual writing part I find kind of kind of painstaking. And so if I was doing it for the money, it wouldn't, wouldn't be worth it. Um, so it is more about the, I mean, the money's nice, but it is more about the just being part of the Ray Wenderlich writer tutorial team and having my name out there kind of in the in places where people are reading the stuff that I write and just I mean just being a part of it really because for me again the watching Ray kind of build up his his blog from the early days I just thought what he was doing was so cool and I kind of wanted to do the same thing and it was much easier to do it for him than to try and like create my own separate tower you know over in another corner so it really and it still is really just i do it i continue to do it mostly because uh it's just i think it's cool and i think it's fun to be a part of it but the money's nice too so (laughs) as an added bonus yeah yeah so one of the other things that you touched on was so attending the developer meetups and i always think that's a an almost unique part of of like being part of the developer community because going back many years when i was a first mis developer and then a MIS manager for a big telecommunications company like I wasn't going off you know the first Monday in every month to my local MIS developer like meeting or going to mingling with a load of other MIS managers but it does seem and it's not just the iOS community obviously but a lot of the developer communities Java and Ruby um, Rails and all this kind of stuff have these little meetups but it seems to be like contained within that that um, niche of an industry of being a developer, like you, you thought on it, like um, how valuable it is, and like you, I mean, you already touched on like networking, um, and yeah. that you've you've got work through there, and then you know working for Ray has perhaps again raised your profile within those within those mm-hmm. groups, which has meant when you say your name, people may recognise your name, and again that leads to all these advantages. But you don't really see that in any other industry. I agree with that. It felt like in the earlier days that everybody that was involved was involved from a sense of being excited about the platform and like a, it was it came from a place of passion, right? And it feels like now that it's been around for a while and it's kind of gotten more stable and there's you know money to be made. It's a kind of you know developing iOS apps is now a pretty lucrative business. I do meet iOS developers and I'm like, oh, you should come out to the local meetings, you know. And they're just like, eh, I, 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 punch, you know, I go in and I work 40, 50 hours a week and that's enough. I understand sort of 
why you'd feel that way. But for me, getting into iOS was always something I thought was cool. I was, you know, I was um, a financial analyst at a hospital before I became a developer. And so I got into it. It was a job. It was like a career change for me because I wanted to be doing something that I was excited about. And so for me, it's always been kind of a passion thing. And so that's partly for me why I, I go to the local meetings. And I mean, I did all of these things first, not because of the money opportunities that ended up kind of uh, g- being generated over time, but just because I wanted to be around other people that were excited about the thing I was excited about and kind of talk to them. And just it's it's half my career and half of it's just something I love doing. Um, and so for me, that's kind of it all started more from a sense of, of being excited about it and, and thinking it was cool. Um, and then it ended up and being becoming my career. So um, I think it's different. It kind of depends on where you're at. And I think there are industries. I think iOS benefits a little bit from it being the cool new hot thing. And I mean, it, that's, you know, the longer it's around, the less it's the cool new hot thing. But it still is kind of has that status, I feel like. I find as well that a lot of people seem to have fallen into being an iOS developer via that route. You know, it, it came out, they were doing some other job or, you know, had a career in some other industry and were spending a lot of time, a lot of their spare time working on iOS because Apple made it incredibly easy to get into. I mean, for me, it was like 60 quid. I think it's like $99 to get the uh, access to the developer portal. You got all the tools for free. And you know away you away you went. Most of us that were interested in iOS already had the devices as soon as they came out because you know the iPhone was crazy and nobody had ever seen a device like this before. So I think you know what you're saying about you you, you meet some people who are saying, oh you know I've already done my work for the week so I don't want to spend in me spare time doing that. But I think a lot of people in this industry and I think this is part of what makes our community a rich, as rich a community as it is is that people were already willing to spend their spare time doing it. So then when it became their full-time job, they were then still willing to put in hours beyond that to do things like speak at conferences, uh, you know, work on books, write tutorials for sites, go to local meetups, and really build this this huge and rich and vibrant community around um, iOS development. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think, um, and I think having that passion usually leads to you know higher quality skill set. If you really care about it and you're really thinking about it, even when you don't have to, you, know, you have a tendency to develop you know over time into a stronger developer and and kind of more conscientious. And you take more pride in your work because it is more you you, you identify more with your career rather than it just kind of serving a role, a purpose in your life. You actually, you know, you're doing the thing that you love. So. Yeah, I mean that was important to me, kind of my whole life. I had I had wondered if I would ever find something I loved enough to do, the, the, you know, the way I do iOS, and I was kind of lucky to find it. I I feel so. So talking about switching careers and becoming an iOS developer, I think this is probably a good point to bring Janie into the conversation because it's something hey. a bit close to her. Welcome, Janie. Hello, nice to be here. Thanks, thanks for coming on. So before we we get into the the meat of the topic. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about who you are and how you got started in iOS development. Okay, um, I'll try to give the short version of that and we can follow up <laughs> on anything that you want to talk about later. But So um, I got into programming relatively late. I started programming about 2012, so I've only actually been like programming programming for three years. Before that, I went to school for journalism 
and I didn't have a demo reel and I didn't make all of the connections I needed to in order to get a job in journalism. So I decided to double down and go back to school for a video editing and audio engineering degree. And then less than a month after I finished that degree, the Great Recession hit and all the places that I thought I was going to work at all went out of business. So then I needed to figure out something else to do with my life. So I worked at Target for a year while I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And that definitely gave me some motivation because I definitely knew I did not want to work at Target for the rest of my life. Um, and I got it down to two things. I was either going to go into programming or I was going to go to law school. And my ex-husband at the time uh, looked at the cost of law school and looked at the cost of sending me to the local community college to learn programming. And he thought that programming seemed like a much better use of resources. So... Journalism, law, and programming, like, did, you wouldn't necessarily put those three things together? Not necessarily. <laughs> so, but, I mean, were, you, is, were computers and programming and things something you were already interested in at the time, and that's why this seemed like a, one of the natural steps that you could take? Or was it just that, again, you just wanted to maybe jump on the bandwagon of this brand new device and um, SDK that was going to allow you to do all these crazy things that you just couldn't do with phones prior to the iPhone? Well, programming was something that always interested me. So, like, back when I was in high school, I would go to the Borders bookstores back when they were still a thing, and there would be, like, this giant wall of programming books, and they'd be, like, from A to Z, and I'd be looking at this going, this is completely intimidating. I have absolutely no idea how anybody gets started with programming. So, you know, like me being who I am, I went to my dad, and I'm like, hey, Dad, I want to get into programming. What do I do? He's like, you don't want to get into programming. Programming is horrible. It'll make you miserable. You absolutely do not want to do it. So I was like, okay, so I guess I'm not doing this programming thing. So then um, after the recession hit and I had kind of like a year where I wasn't really doing anything and I needed to figure out what I was going to do with my life, I started going to work with my dad and um, he works at the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the botany department had an IT guy who was an interesting character and uh, he was the one that got me into programming because like I was kind of like had this aimless existence going on. I didn't really know what I was doing and so like I came to work with my dad and he'd take me and uh, he sat me down with the... Um, Llama Pearl book from like 1996 and a laptop from 2003 and the uh, terminal and said, here, you're going to learn Pearl. <laughs> Thrown in at the deep end. Um, so as somebody who is sort of still relatively new to iOS development and probably just development in general, what, what have been your first impressions of the iOS developer scene? The iOS developer scene is amazing. Back when I was like an emo high school teenager and I thought that when I went to college I'd find you know, this utopian community of people who would all love and appreciate me for who I am and then I didn't find that at my, my rural engineering school in Platteville, Wisconsin. I became very bitter and decided that I was never going to find anybody in the world that like I could connect with on any sort of level. And then I went to my first programming conference and I was like, holy crap, here are all of the people that I thought I was going to meet like 10 years ago when I went to college. This is great. So I'm... You've been a part of that community now for three years, I think you said. So how has it evolved over that time? How have you seen it evolve? I don't know how it evolved for everybody else, but it definitely, it, it, my perspective of it changed because I went to my first conference back in 2013. I went to, um, there was a local conference that was for mobile development called Snow Mobile. And it was run by uh, Jennifer and Jim Remsick. And they had a policy where if you were a student and you wanted to come to the conference but you couldn't afford to, they set up a volunteer program where you would come and you would help them run the conference and you got to attend the conference for free. And so, like, that was my first introduction to programming conferences. The first time I'd ever met actual, like, developers and they all treated me like I was, like, one of them even though I was, like, this dumbass college student who didn't know how to do anything. And so, for me, like, 
starting off the first year or so that I was going to conferences, I was going as an attendee. I was somebody who was going and trying to connect with people and make and you know be able to network and try to get my name out there. And the last year that I've been going to conferences, I've been a speaker. So for me, it's a really different experience because I feel like most of the people that I went to conferences to see are people I already know. And now I really would like it if other people that I don't know would come up and like introduce themselves to me and get to know me. So Janie, from, from my perspective, I first heard your name, I think, in connection to a talk you did on like GPU image and shaders at 360 iDev maybe. That um, sounds about right. And then and then all of a sudden I heard your name like everywhere. Like <laughs> you're you're friends with everyone on Twitter and you were speaking at conferences everywhere and you were uh, writing a book with Chris Adamson and you were anyway it's just it seemed like it seemed like you went from like zero to sixty in like no time at all. So it's obviously that's my like disconnected perspective. Is that how have you done that? And is that kind of the, the whole story in terms of, of your engagement with the community and how, how you kind of got your name out there? Um, for, like, say, from my perspective, very quickly. That's just, that's crazy to me that all of this stuff happened. And like I said, I feel kind of like, well, not, not like I've said, but um, I think I wrote in my blog before that um, back when I was still a student. So I told you back when I had my journalism degree and my other degrees that I didn't go and network. I kind of assumed when I went to college for journalism that when I got done with college that, you know, like, like a company would come by and they would, they would hire me to come and do news for them and that, they, you know, I'd, there'd be this like pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I got done with school and they gave me a diploma and then I'm like, okay, now what do I do? And I, that was a really horrible experience for me, and I decided that that was absolutely not going to happen this time. So while I was a programming student, I basically went to my teachers. I'm like, tell me what I need to do now while I'm still a student in order to be able to get a job. So that was how I started going to conferences because I was told, you know, you go to conferences, you meet people, and you do that to find jobs. And one of the reasons that I got into iOS specifically was because I was interested in audio. When I was going to school for the audio engineering and the video editing stuff, I was really interested in how the tools worked, like more so than the actual product that I was creating with the tools. So when I found out that I could actually learn all the stuff to go and make these tools, it was just like the coolest thing ever. And um, I found out about Chris Adamson's core audio book, and I found out he was going to be in Chicago like a couple of weeks after I found out about it, and I wanted to make sure that I went to this conference so that I could meet him. So like that was so all of that stuff that, that happened with the book, and Chris and I, like that happened like a year after, the, the seeds for that were kind of planted back a year earlier. So for me, I was kind of throwing things out, hoping that one or two things might actually like grow and take root, and then all of a sudden like everything did, and I was like, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> So, so do you think it's like important then to be well-known amongst your peers? I think that it's incredibly important to be well-known against, uh, well-known amongst your peers, especially if you want to kind of do a different type of career. I think if you just wanted to have like a normal like nine to five, you know, punching the clock type job that you guys were talking about earlier, then it's not necessarily that important. But if you're somebody that wants to do something different or unique or be a contractor or do something that's kind of outside the box, I think it's incredibly important for people to know who you are. And what sort of advantages do you think this brings then? Um, I have a lot of visibilities, um, as like you were saying. I do. I did a talk on GPU programming for 360 iDev. So everybody in the community knows that I'm interested in OpenGL. That I'm interested in Metal. That I'm interested in audio stuff. I get a lot of people who, if they need something done in one of those things, they they just they know that that's something that I'm interested in, and I get people sent to me for that. And do you think there are? So obviously, we, I mean, we've talked about a lot of the advantages of 
being well known and the kind of opportunities that they bring. But do you think there are any downsides to it? I feel personally like I have a lot of pressure on me to make sure that I deliver. So like I was like I was saying, I kind of feel like I spent a, a year marketing myself. I went around trying to connect to people. I went to all these conferences. You know, I handed out my business card to everybody. I started doing everything I could to make sure everybody knows who I was. And you know, now everybody knows who I am. And now it's like, oh boy, now I actually have to make sure that my code is correct and the things that I put on my blog are okay because I kind of feel like you know, I, you know I'm waiting for people to figure out that I don't actually know what I'm doing. <laughs> So do you feel like you're more maybe under the microscope now than you were a year ago? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was, it was kind of nice to have it be where people didn't know who I was. <laughs> it doesn't seem like you get intimidated. It sounds like you just do it. Like For me, uh, that's something that if I think about what you've done, I'm like, oh, I should, I should do what Janie does. The, the, my immediate feeling of that is a little bit intimidated. And I mean, I've, I, I think about this because at every step when I've written stuff for Ray or when I've written stuff on my blog or when I've done things that have kind of put my name out there in association with some technology, I do feel that intimidation and I kind of push through it and do it anyway. But, but I definitely, there were definitely times in my own experience where I almost didn't take an opportunity or almost didn't do a thing. Cause I felt like I, I'm not quite good enough. I'm not, I, I don't know enough yet of what I'm doing to put myself out there as kind of an expert on this thing is that something that you struggle with or do you ignore it do you just not feel it or like what's your take on that well, that was something I struggled with initially. Like I said, when I went to my first conference and I was uh, a volunteer, I went to there and I didn't know anybody. And so it was lunchtime and I just kind of, you know, felt kind of down because I didn't know anybody who was there. I didn't I didn't feel like I could talk to just talk to anybody. So I kind of sat in a corner by myself and started eating my sandwich, like, uh, you know, pathetically by myself. And then I felt uh, like a punch in my shoulder and I turned around and it was the guy who was the videographer for the conference. He said, you, you're not eating alone. You're coming and you're eating with me. So I went with him and then like half of the speakers at the conference all came and sat down and we were all at a big table and a lot of them were like talking to me and asking me questions and I'm like, why are these people talking to me? I don't have a very interesting life. I don't know anything. But it just really kind of changed my, my thought of how conferences are supposed to be. Like I, if I sat and ate by myself, I probably would not have gone to another conference after that because I wouldn't have gotten anything out of it. So I think it's really important for people with, to have a really good first conference experience. And with uh, Chris, like... I came down to that conference specifically to meet him, and I didn't talk to him until the last day of the conference because, like, I saw him kind of walking around, but I didn't really know what to talk to him about, and I, I didn't, I knew he didn't know who I was, and I was really kind of intimidated by it. So he had a, a talk that he was doing about core audio on the last day of the conference, and I went there and I asked him questions about it, and then we ate lunch, and then you know, then he was approachable, then it was okay. <laughs> so we, we've kind of mentioned, oh, you, you know, you've spoke about you spent a year of your life marketing yourself. <laughs> which, you know, is a ton of work. And especially, you know, if you then put that into the context of having a full-time job, writing a book, um, hosting a podcast, which we'll get onto in a moment, and speaking at a lot of conferences. So, I mean, obviously you consider this time well spent, but I was wondering, like, what, what you get from it personally. Um, like, I started speaking at the conferences back when I was still kind of, I didn't have a full-time job yet, and I was still trying to get my career off the ground, and I went to the conferences because I wanted to meet people, and that was the only way that I could afford to go, because I couldn't, I didn't have money for a ticket, I didn't have money for a hotel room, and there was no way I could go to these conferences if I wasn't a speaker at them. So, initially, like, it, I went just to be able to meet people, and now I like being able to go because it gives me a chance to actually see people that I see, you know, once or twice a year. 
uh, you were talking about like establishing connections. You, yeah, you can establish a connection, but then you have to maintain it, and you maintain it by continuing to interact with people on Twitter or seeing them at you know like AltConf or WWDC or 360iDev. And I just I think it's really important that if you want to maintain connections with people in the community, that you have to keep going out and you have to keep seeing them in person at least once or twice a year. And so, like for me personally, it gives me a chance to you know go out. I, I work at a small company. The only person that I get to talk to every day is Brad, which is really, really, really awesome. Don't get me wrong about that. But sometimes it's nice to see other people and have them buy me scotch and tell me that they think that I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> and would you say then that's... So for somebody who might be thinking about volunteering to speak at a conference, but perhaps maybe thinks that the, the, they don't have enough experience, you know, like they don't have enough self-confidence to be able to do it and therefore are the kind of people that will always want to do it but might never do it. A good way to get over that is to find a conference you really want to go to but that you have absolutely no way of paying for and then like the only way, because that seems like a really good way to get over that that hurdle because you, you, I personally get a lot um, from from attending to conferences, not just from the, the community side but also the learning as well. So, I think if somebody had said that to me like a couple of years ago before I started speaking at conferences and I was really nervous and I, again, really didn't have the self-confidence to do it and I was kind of pushed into it by my friends and family, you know, go, go and do it. But if somebody said to me, just pick a conference that's like miles away that they're willing to pay to get you there and it's going to be a great conference. But obviously the trade-off is you're going to have to get up and stand up and speak in front of these people. That might be a really good way to get into it. Well, I wanted to say, I was trying to figure out a, a good time of talking about this in the interview, but like, so for me, again, also with doing the conferences, is that it was something that I was a little bit more comfortable with. I, you know, I haven't been programming since I was 12. I don't have a computer science degree. I'm also fairly self-taught, um, but like, I hosted a radio news program in Madison for three years. I wanted to do public speaking for a living. I was, I, you know, I have a, a journalism major and an English um, composition minor. So for me, like coming into programming, I knew that I wasn't the world's greatest programmer, but I knew that I had all of these other skills that I had worked on over the years that I could bring to the table that maybe other people didn't necessarily bring with them. Um, back at uh, CocoConf Columbus, Daniel Steinberg was doing um, his keynote talk, and he was talking about how there were two paths to success. He was saying that one path to success is being the absolute best at something. So you, you can be a Brad Larson and you can be the best GPU programmer in the community, or you can be you know pretty good at two or more things. So I figured if I could be an okay programmer and a really good conference speaker, or a really good writer, or a really good something else, that that would kind of make up for my deficiencies with the programming, at least for a little while, while it gave me some time to actually go and build that stuff up. Bushel is a cloud-based management solution for all the Mac, iPhone, iPad, and iPod devices in your workplace. It's designed to make even the most complex tasks simple so anyone can use it, leaving them to focus on their business. Features include device inventory, app distribution, email and Wi-Fi configuration, security settings, streamlined enrollment, and so much more. Bushel is free for three devices forever. Additional devices cost just $2 per device per month. You can find out more at bushel.com. Thanks again to Bushel for sponsoring this episode of the RayWenderlich.com podcast. So, JD, like we, we spoke about the pressure and the weight that's now on your shoulders after <laughs> this meteoric rise to fame through the iOS developer community. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> even, even taking all that into account, you recently said to me that you wanted to be 
known as the Y of the iOS <laughs> developer community. Now, I know we will have some non-Ruby programmers listening. So first off, if you could explain who Y is, but then also why that's such a, an important aspiration for you. Okay, so for those who are not familiar with Y, Y is short for Why the Lucky Stiff. Y was a uh, programmer in the Ruby community who had a completely anonymous identity. Like people for the longest time, they like didn't know his real name. When he would go to conferences, he'd pay cash. Like people didn't really like no, nobody knew who he was. He was just he was he was a persona that was adopted by this person who went into the Ruby community, and he just did this. Re- he did a lot of really amazing things. He wrote a book called Wise Poignant Guide to Ruby that had lots of like cool little cartoons, and it was very much like I feel kind of like Y is like the Lewis Carroll of our time. All of his stuff is just really incredibly interesting and bizarre. And uh, like another one of his projects that he had was a project called uh, Hackity Hack that was to designed to teach kids how to program. And I feel like he just was this really awesome, whimsical member of the programming community that wanted to make it a fun place to be and wanted everybody to be happy and think differently and do really awesome stuff. But I also think that Y had an incredible amount of pathos. Like I found uh, one of the last tweets that he put out before he committed uh, information suicide was, programming is rather thankless. You see your works become replaced by superior ones in a year, unable to run at all in a few more. And I feel like that really encapsulates a lot of what programming is. Like one of the reasons that I chose uh, the uh, persona Red Queen Coder was because when I got into iOS development, you know, like I we were learning it and then a couple of months later my teacher said, oh, iOS 6 came out, everything that you've learned is obsolete, you need to learn this new thing and you have to do this every single year for the rest of the time that you're a developer. And I felt like, you know, I just, I'm trying to learn how to do anything and I feel like every time I learn something, the whole, the, the ground is going to shift out from under my feet and I'm never going to to actually get ahead of anything. And uh, the Red Queen was a character from Alice Through the Looking Glass who was running as fast as she possibly could just to stay in one place. And I felt like that as a beginning programmer. And I feel kind of like it's important to be able to embrace the fact that everything keeps changing and that what we're doing is transitory, that you can't just finish an app and expect it to work in three or four years if you don't maintain it, that it's something that's going to be a constant source of of maintenance from you and that you just have to accept that and embrace it and just be zen and okay with it. And I can understand why somebody, you know, can kind of lose their mind and just go crazy trying to keep up with everything because it can be really intimidating. Well, what I specifically was talking about wanting to be the why of the developer community for Like, I've been trying over my career to take all of the things that could normally be considered weaknesses and turn them into strengths. So for me, I'm a beginner. There's all this stuff that I just don't understand because I don't have the same base of knowledge as everybody. So I had to go through and explain things to myself in a certain way in order to be able to understand how stuff works. And I would really love to be able to write something like Wise Poignant Guide to Ruby, only be my poignant guide to Swift, where I can go in and I can write really weird, all the weird, really bizarre ways that my brain is processed how to explain stuff to try to make it a little bit easier for people to understand programming. Because I, I genuinely think that most things in life aren't really that difficult. They're just not explained in a way that people can necessarily understand. You know, like I think I saw there was a, a tweet recently where somebody was like, look, people, monads are not that difficult. They're just applicative functors. 
And it's like that that, huh. that doesn't that doesn't clarify anything. You can't say that something's exactly like something else that people have never heard of and expect that to make sense. And so I just I would I really appreciated the fact that he was trying to take a complicated concept conceptual thing that you know most people present in a very boring manner in a way that you know it could be you know, narrated by Ben Stein and he was trying to make it the interesting and whimsical because I, I genuinely think people can process stuff in a narrative better than they can just you know off on its own and I just I really would like to try to explore trying to figure out ways of taking boring and complicated concepts and making them fun and interesting and explaining them to, a pe- to people in a way that they understand um, you recently took over the NS Brief uh, I mean not that recently what has it been six months or something you took over NS Brief from Saul Mora um, how did that come about and how, how has that been um, it it was kind of a, a sudden thing. Um, I had um, been on NS Brief the year before. Like, um, I hadn't heard of it before because I was a relatively new developer, and Saul reached out to me. He's like, hey, you want to be on the podcast? I was like, sure. So went and did the interview, and then I saw him at 360i Dev, and I said to him, hey, uh, when's my interview going to come out? He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I decided that we really can't use it because, you know, it was way too conversational. You know, it just sounded like you and I were like old friends just, you know, shooting the breeze. And, you know, I just, I, I hate podcasts that are like that, so we have to redo it again. I'm like, we never talked to each other before. We weren't old friends. We didn't know one another. And I just, um, like I said, I did radio news for three years. I was very comfortable with interview situations because it was something that I'd done for a really long time. And when I talked to Saul, I kind of asked him, like, hey, why did you decide to bring me on here? And he's, he just said that he thought I would be good at it and he wanted to um, help me give my career a boost. How has it been? Have you enjoyed doing it? Oh, it's been absolutely fantastic. I'm so happy that I've had a chance to like go out and talk to people that I have wanted to talk to for years. Like the first person I talked to was Michael Tyson, who did uh, Loopy and um, the Amazing Audio Engine. Like he was one of my heroes back when I was going and learning programming because um, I heard this story about how he wanted to do this inter-app audio thing, but that Apple said you can't do inter-app communication but he figured out a way of doing it and then apple adopted it and i just thought you know that was like the coolest thing that you know somebody told him that something was impossible and he figured out a way to do it and it was okay and i was like i want to be that guy when i'm a grown-up developer i want to go and i want to do all this impossible stuff and getting a chance to be able to reach out to him and go hey i want to talk to you for like an hour and geek out about audio but like it's okay because it's gonna be on a podcast and i'm not just like a weird creepy stalker person (laughs) (laughs) it's been really awesome Great. That was a great episode. I really enjoyed that one, by the way. What well, wasn't he driving around Europe in a camper van as well at the same time as he was putting the Amazing Engine and Loopy together? Yeah, and that's interesting to me that, like, basic. So, again, like, I talk to people and they will come up to me and they'll be like, oh, you know, I really want to. I have this amazing, like, app idea, but I can't do it because I have to, you know, work at my job and put food on the table and keep a roof over my head. And I think that that's, that he's a really good example of if you just kind of say, you know, screw it, I'm not going to worry about that stuff. I'm going to take, I'm going to live as cheaply as humanly possible. I'm not going to do anything for six months other than work on this, you know, passion project that I have, that it can sometimes actually work out for you. So we've spoke about the book and we spoke about the podcast. Um, what other sort of opportunities has being well known within the iOS community open up for you? <coughs> cough, cough, raywindlick.com. <laughs> well, I got invited to the first, I got started getting invited to conferences. Um, one of the big ones that I'm super excited about being invited to is the Ray Wenderlich, uh 
conference that's going to be in March of 2016. Um, I, it's really exciting to me that I finally get invited to conferences and I don't have to you know, do the, the jumping through hoops and, and filling out the call for papers for all of them anymore. Um, I recently joined the Swift tutorial team for Ray Wenderlich com and I'm going to be working on the Swift Apprentice this um, coming year. So conference book and writing all in one. Although I must say I was a little bit disappointed that you chose a Swift team over the iOS team. I feel more comfortable with the, the Swift <laughs> stuff. I... <laughs> I should point out as well that um, you speaking at RW Defcon 16 is a podcast exclusive. We do like to have those every now and again because a speaker <laughs> list hasn't been made public yet. Ray was comfortable with us revealing that. So I think it's going to be fantastic. And I'll get to meet you in person as well, and Jake. I mean, obviously, I've met Jake last year in person. (laughs) Um, But we'll get to meet you in person this time. Well, I know that Saul made the announcement that I was taking over NS Brief at the last conference. So I I got to be there in spirit, but I didn't actually get to be there. So I was, like, looking at all of the tweets and all the cool stuff and all the other people. And I was like, gosh, darn it. I wish I could have been here. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm conscious of the time because we are going to have to wrap, wrap things up shortly. So we've obviously got an audience of people listening to us talk about this. Um, What sort of tools are there that developers can use to help raise their own profile? Um, For me, the biggest tool, and I know that that's probably, this is going to sound stupid, is just being friendly and genuinely interested in what people are doing. Um, A lot of the connections that I made with people, I made not because I was trying to get anything from anybody, but because somebody was doing something that I thought was really cool and I connected with them. So like you can use Twitter. Uh, One example I have of how Twitter can work is that uh, last year I met a developer, Justin Winter, at one of my many conferences that I did in August. And I just met so many people during that month that I just didn't remember all of them. Um, I recently met him again in Columbus, and I didn't remember meeting him before. I knew he was somebody who had talked to me on Twitter. I knew he said that he had met me at another conference. So when he came up to me and introduced himself to me, I was first off, I was like, wait, you're not who I thought you were. And then like after I got to you know spend 10, 15 minutes with him, now I know who he is. We've spent a lot of time together at that conference, and he is now somebody that I would consider to be a connection. So I just, you know, the tools I would say is, you know, use Twitter. Um, make sure that you actually go and talk to people in person. Don't just meet them once. If you meet them once, you know, tweet them, do stuff to try to get them to remember who you are, and then make sure that you spend time with them so that they actually, like, connect in their brain. Oh, this is the person that I, that I know from here. As a way of kind of wrapping up, you said a lot of things. You've given a lot of good, ex- like, your own experience and a lot of good advice, but... If somebody were to come to you and was brand new to the community and they were interested in kind of, you know, doing some of the stuff that you have done, what advice would you give to them? I would tell people to specialize because, like, I, one of the big things that I hear from people who are relatively new is they go, oh, man, you've done all this cool stuff. And I'm like, well, pick what, what do you want to do? And they're like, either I want to, you know, I just want to get a job or I want to do everything. And I would one of the reasons that I got as far as I have is because I specifically, you know, like I was, I was interested in audio. I was interested in GPU programming. And I went and I talked to the people who were very specialized in those things. And those people generally didn't have a lot of people coming to them, asking them to train them on how to do stuff. And I got a lot of attention from really high level developers because I was very specifically interested in a couple of very difficult and specific things. And that's another thing I'd say is try to find something that is either difficult or is perceived to be difficult and really try to specialize in that and try to do something to kind of set yourself apart instead of just being like, oh, I've got to learn five languages on the off chance that I find a job somewhere that wants me to know one of them. Okay, guys, I think that's a good point to wrap things up. Thanks again, Janie, for joining us. Yay.
<laughs> um, guys, as always, if you've got any feedback, uh, podcast at raywendley.com is the place to send it. And we've had some really good reviews left on iTunes lately, so keep those coming because we really do appreciate them. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.